So what do we do in disruption? We need to lift up our head. We need to look around that corner. We need to see what the future is bringing towards us in terms of opportunity. Grab a hold of those things and let those help pull you up to what I call the next normal. You know, partner with the future. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Do the opposite of nothing. Be the opposite of helpless. Howdy, folks. It's RJ Singh here at Ultra Habits, and thank you for joining us this week. And we are talking to David Gearsdorf, and that is his quote. Now, David has recently written a book called Hardships, Navigating Your Company, Career, and Life Through the Fog of Disruption. This book details his four decades of experience navigating brutal disruptions to achieve innovation and growth. This is an executive that has actually navigated the stuff, not written or studied about it. He is a man with deep expertise, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and the book. Now, David greatly enjoys helping companies and their teams envision the opportunities and challenges of the near and future. He innovates continuously with them, helps them create sustainable value for all stakeholders, companies, clients, and close friends know David for disrupting disruption. When disruption is upon you, there is what happens around you, how it affects you, and what you're going to do about it. Do the opposite of nothing, David advises. Now, David is an entrepreneur with extensive C-suite experience in the cruise, travel, and tourism industry, including senior executive leadership positions at Holland America Line, Windstar Cruises, Paul Gowan Cruises, American West Steamboat Company, and Exploration Cruise Lines. David is founder of Global Voyages Group, a CEO-level advisory engagements firm addressing growth, performance, product development, acquisition, marketing, sales, distribution, and emerging technologies. He's also an advisor and limited partner of Seven Peak ventures and previously he was managing director and ceo of cf2gs an award-winning marketing services firm acquired by true north communications david is a former chairman of cruise lines international and numerous other industry and civic organizations he attended the university of washington and completed a northwestern university kellogg school of management program in entrepreneurship this is a really, really engaging conversation. Um, every now and then I get CEOs, I get captains of industries that have really led the charge for 20, 30, 40 years. And David was one of them. Truly a pleasure to talk to. I could have kept talking to him. Unfortunately, we started a little bit late and I had a meeting after, so I had to end prematurely, but I am sure to get this man back on the show. True gentleman, truly enjoyed the book, and I believe you will really enjoy our time together. All the best, folks. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of David as I get out of here. Peace out. Have a super, super killer week. David, we are live with a, another Ultra Habits show, and we are super grateful to have you on. Um, we're going to be talking about hardships and we're going to be talking about your experience gained through that whole piece, um, the difficulty within, obviously, the, the cruise industry and your learnings, not only from then, but from your whole business journey. So, again, I just wanted to welcome you to the Ultra Habits Show. RJ, what a pleasure uh, to join you. Uh, as I told you before, I'm so uh, taken with your approach of uh, Ultra Habits and uh, your commitment to help let's say the corporate athlete uh, and others uh, who are beginning as corporate athletes, really develop the mindset, the um, practices and the um, um, capabilities to go uh, the long course. 
Yeah, and I have to say, I just want to start off with a little anecdotal story that occurred the other day within my business here at Cora. So I had never really experienced anything cruise-related, cruise industry, and we hired a new girl. And we were doing the introductions at the toolbox, and uh, my CEO asked her, he goes, can you let us know something a bit weird and unusual about yourself that we would know? And she says, and this is literally two days ago, she goes, I'm obsessed with the cruise industry. <laughs> and I, and we were like, well, why? She goes, because I'm obsessed with how a city floating on water operates. And we're in logistics, we're in supply chain, right? So she goes, just from a supply chain and logistics perspective, the complexity of actually a moving city. And then obviously I had to add my two cents. I was like, yeah, I heard the morgue is pretty like a real kind of pumping. <laughs> it's a real thing, right? Like, the ships, right? like, yeah, like there's a real, and you actually talk about it in your book, like there's a real issue of, of death and sickness and, you know, you've got an older population anyway. So that's, that's kind of my, my story. And I found the timing of it really, really interesting because it was literally two days ago. So um, before I kick into your journey, one of the things that really struck me when I got into your book was your poem. It was quite profound in, you know, like I, I, had, I was looking for a copy on the internet because I wanted to read it out, but I couldn't find anything. But I was just hoping you could explain to the audience, the ship of my soul, what inspired you to write that poem? Where did it come from? Uh, it was the outcome of what I called a perfect storm a convergence of very difficult events in a short period of time. And as I'm an athlete and as being in motion and outside is one of the great cures and tonics for the quality of my life, I was on a run uh, on a sunny, chilly afternoon reflecting. And this poem went through my head in a stream. It struck, it hit me so hard that it was unforgettable. Then end of my run, I came home, I wrote it down. It was that simple. It just came straight through. Now, what occurred was I suffered um, a good deal of loss, personal loss, uh, loved ones close in. My father, uh, who was my best friend and a business partner for many years earlier in my life um, and a huge inspiration for me, uh, passed uh, way too early and very unexpectedly. Uh, my stepmother of 30 years, just six months, six weeks before him, and my natural mother just two months after that. My grandmother in between all of that, I'm the oldest male in the family. So not only did I have to deal with my personal uh, yeah, you know, impact of all that, being at the bedside, making decisions about end of life, watching, uh, to, and being there to ensure no one was alone in that moment, it was... Uh, even now, as I, as I speak about it, you know, it, it touches you uh, deeply in your soul. It, it impacts your life. So it, that combination of events, my son leaving for college at the same time, that's a loss, a big loss. It happens so fast. I say to all parents, you will not believe how fast um, in a busy life and career that time goes by and suddenly your kids are adults and individuals and off to college. So all of that informed you know, the words of that poem. And, and it's a hopeful poem because at the end of it, I express my ship becomes the sea. In other words, I became one with the storm, you know, and I set course for new horizons once beyond my imagining, which means it's a growth experience. Important stuff. So I want to, I want to, I want to unpack that because you know, I was having this conversation last Friday that it's my belief that how an individual derives meaning from a tough situation is very critical in how we then turn that situation into a force of good. What's your view on that? Like, how did you, how did you take that? And obviously you express that in the poem, but how, what were the mechanics is how you took all that? Cause that's, that's quite profound in terms of the challenge and the emotional toll. How did you interpret that looking back 
in terms of the meaning and how did you then use that as a force to move forward versus getting bogged down in the pain? This occurred at the same time that I was a very senior executive in a multi-billion dollar enterprise. No room, no room for these kinds of impacts. When you're running 110%, it's a life lesson. When you're running 110%, you have no capacity. You have no capacity for the unexpected. So you need to learn how to build that capacity into your operating model because it's going to come. Disruptions will come. Hardships will come. You have to allow for them. That's one. The other thing is I determined in the midst of it, as painful and difficult as it was, that I will come through the other side of this, A. B, I will come through it healthier and stronger. So, you know, I want to be in a position that um, my journey can inspire those around me. It can support those around me. It can be an example for those around me. One day I will pass. What is the example that I will make for my kids, my spouse and others as to this end of life? You know, that the, the reality that life changes that is the ultimate disruption, of course, <laughs> is uh, that, that we have, uh, uh, you know, that we have an expired time. We don't know what it is, uh, when it is, but it's there. So uh, that guided me in terms of looking out for my health. I didn't let my um, commitment to staying in motion and exercising and uh, and nutrition and reflection and journaling uh, fall by the wayside. Uh, in fact, I intensified those things. Uh, and I had to draw some hard lines in the sand on the professional side in order to give reclaim some space for me to get through. And I found that many people understood you know, with that and were supportive of that. Some were not, you know, in a big corporate environment. Uh, the drive to those quarterly earnings, you know, and uh, those meetings, 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 et cetera. Sometimes uh, not everyone has room. Uh, yeah, that's too, I'm really sorry for you. And let's get back to work. And you quickly discern the different types of people, the different levels of empathy, you know, that exist out there. And, uh, you know, that, that's the way it is. And you, you adjust for it. But uh, I found that uh, where there was support available and I leaned on it, I didn't pursue false support that wasn't there. And, uh, and I really took responsibility for my own health and, uh, generation and regeneration through it. See, you're reflecting back on that, your capacity to take what was a traumatic culmination events and then determine you were going to become stronger through the other end. What, what do you think developed? What were the hallmarks that developed that quality to be able to reframe it that way? Like, were you born that way, David, or was this the curation of good parenting or life experience? A little bit, a little bit of each. And I think, I believe I can answer that for you. Um, I was born, I like to say I was born into disruption, single parent, family. Um, my father, very young man, my sister and I, he took on the challenge of raising the team. He was 21 years old when I was born. He was 19 when my sister was born. An entrepreneur, didn't finish college, you know, worked, uh, um, he just worked so hard and he had such a commitment to um, family. And we went through a lot. We went through a lot as a little uh, unit of the three of us, we called ourselves the three musketeers, navigating life in, in an, as an unusual unit. My father uh, was uh, incredibly busy. He, he, uh, I was born in Alaska. He came to Alaska working on the Trans-Alaska um, Highway, built construction work. He found a job in the uh, airline business, baggage handler, then a, a ticket clerk at the, at the counter. Um, a little airline that became Alaska Airlines. And he became one of the top senior executives in that airline. And that happened through force of will, hard work, commitment, huge creativity. He was brilliantly creative uh, person. Um, now, 
that the energy around all that <laughs> was phenomenal. The the uh, the setbacks, the changes, the I, I was raised probably by um, a multitude of uh, uh, people who worked at the airline. I, my sister and I'd be dropped off behind the ticket counter or we'd hang out in the hangar while our dad worked or we'd be sent far away to Panama and other places where relatives were. Uh, and so we constantly, I constantly had to adapt and readjust to change circumstances that I wasn't always happy about, but I had to find my way to um, find peace with the way things were. I didn't get nearly as much of my dad's time as I wanted as a kid or probably need it, you know, but, um, uh, yeah, I think that there was a resilience and an adaptability built into my early experience as a child. And then we built a family business, quite a sizable family business that was full of entrepreneurial challenge, um, and, uh, learned further, um, adaptability and, uh, and resilience, uh, through that. We built this company, we sold it to a very large enterprise. Um, and, uh, uh, the deal fell apart and we lost 15 years of amazingly hard work in the process. Uh, it's a long story, a lot of lessons in it, but, uh, all of that stuff, you know, layers on layers on layers on and strengthens your character, your determination, your, your resilience as a muscle. I find that really interesting, David. I, first of all, I find single parent families with a, with a man to be unique, obviously. <clears throat> and that's interesting as well, because there is, you know, is, is meaningful and uh, a good job as your father would have done. There's, there's no feminine quality there, which can be interesting. And obviously there's going to be some repercussions there, obviously, where you may not have that soft that's landing. A, that's insightful it's, of you. Right. Yeah. You, right? Yeah. you don't have that soft yeah. landing as, as you do when you have a mom around. I find also the fact that you're in the travel industry industry uh, interesting. I don't know if that was by design or coincidental that your dad was in in travel and you're you're in it. Um, I too grew up. My mom is a lifer in the airlines as well, so I grew up. Yeah, yeah, Qantas, Virgin Atlantic, um, yeah, a whole host of. So I kind of revolved around SFO my whole childhood in the back offices there, San Francisco Airport, hanging around, you know. I love, love the airports, love the energy there. Um, I think the travel industry is chaotic and my mom was hooked and I'm no doubt you have your views and I guess that will kind of move us into the next part of the conversation. So you're running massive cruise line, everything's, you know, money's pumping, hand over fist, everybody's traveling, it's all sunshines and rainbows and then COVID happens. Give us a view internally of what that looked like in your industry? Because we know the cruise industry was ground zero. You guys kind of became the lepers, the, the carrier of disease, right? Like, what was, what was that like? A tough go, for sure. Well, you know, you at the outset of our conversation, you mentioned a young lady who just joined your company. And uh, I was going to say, Keeper, she's, she's really smart to have those observations about the cruise industry, the smart city, the logistics of it all. Uh, that's really smart because for most, looking at the cruise industry externally, how romantic, beautiful white ships, gorgeous sand beaches, uh, the, the, the ports of the world, uh, how fantastic an escape, get away, you know, and, and that's all true of the cruise industry. It's why the, it's the highest satisfaction vacation on earth. It simply is. Um, but the cruise industry really is one of the toughest operating businesses and most capital intensive businesses on earth. 24 seven remote smart cities of all shapes and sizes on all waterways in every time zone, having to operate to perfection, charged with the care of guests and crew, the environment, the communities to which, uh, the, on which the ships call and the enjoyment. Uh, of, and satisfaction of all. It's a big task. Uh, the industry also, because of its breadth, its footprint worldwide, and its unique nature, is subject to all type of disruption. Economic, uh, um, geopolitical, 
um, weather and um, as we see health related issues. We've been through SARS, we've been through Gulf Wars, we've been through the Great Recession, on and on and on. Yet, somehow, this industry has managed to grow, expand, consistently innovate, consistently improve quality and value. And that's not by accident. It's by learning the lessons, incorporating them, you know, being ever more ready, ever more resilient the next time. So now along comes the biggest disruption of all, COVID. And of course, um, a couple of cruise ships were some of the earliest, as you said, ground zeros. That one of the unique things about cruise ships is they are so health forward that their uh, ability to um, recognize illness, um, isolate, um, uh, test, report, it's phenomenal. There's nowhere you're going to go as a traveler where you're going to be in as safe and as health-focused an environment uh, and safety-focused as as a cruise ship, modern cruise ship. And of course, today on the other side of COVID, it's even more so. But um, so that's why you know um, because of their ability to re isolate and report, they become the news. We see this over and over again. You know, you pass through an airport with COVID. No one will ever be reporting about that airport. Stay in a hotel and you have COVID no, you know, for three days and leave. No one, the hotel won't know. No one will know. The cruise lines, the second someone is ill, has symptoms, it's reported, it's recorded, it's, uh, you know, uh, and the like, and it's public information uh, with all the global health organizations. So it becomes a focus. And that's okay. You know, we, uh, it's okay because ultimately, um, I, I argue cruise lines are the beacons of health and they will be even more so in the future of travel. The protocols around health, around environment, around green sustainability, um, unbelievable. It's a huge story all by itself. So uh, you have an industry quite resilient, quite experienced, hit with the biggest uh, impact of all and uh, more determined than ever to draw on past lessons to get through this big event. I mean, let's face it, $30 billion collectively had to be raised to hold it all together, to hold it all together, you know, um, not operating, uh, but, and, but to retain vessels, employees, uh, support partners in the business around the world, you know, invest in new health tech and protocols. Uh, amazing, just amazing. And now, of course, we see by summer, by the end of July, 100% of the cruise fleet will be up and running uh, very consistently, uh, delivering full <laughs> and uh, delivering that great uh, vacation that is pent up for two years. Uh, people, you know, wanting to uh, get back to experiencing. At the same time, I think uh, 12 new ships. No, 22 new ships, $12 billion of new investment, um, beds for uh, um, 2 million passengers a year, uh, enter the stream of the industry in 22 alone. The growth continues. It's not like you can turn off the delivery of new ships. They're coming out of shipyards. You know, they're multi-year projects. Um, so, uh, wow, what a task to to go into pause, to hold it all together, to restart in stages, and to absorb new capacity. Amazing, amazing industry. One of the things <clears throat> you said in the book, and I, I would agree, is that your industry, the lessons that can be learned in disruption within your industry, unlike tech, right? Like tech disruption is different in a sense because you could be more agile and you know your 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 time frames are different your risks are different but with such heavy capex uh long term projects um the geopolitical element uh the global element the health and like all these things coming together as you just explained the lessons that can be taken out of the disruption in your industry can really be applied across the main. And I would agree with that. Like, I, 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 I totally agree with that. So you come out of this, this kind of chaos, you're in the chaos of COVID executives are trying to hold it together. And 
where and how did you get the idea to then take these lessons and put it in a framework? Like, how did that fall upon you? So I'm a journaler. I keep a journal. I have behind me in the closet uh, a stack of representing over 30 years of personal handwritten journals. And those journals um, cover my personal life, my career life, my professional business life. It's all in there. It's a way that I process and it's a way that I um, uh, gain insight and, and think forward. I think backwards, I think deeply, and I think forward in the process of my writing. So um, when uh, I had been thinking about this book for quite some time, Hardships, I had selected that name quite some years ago. I just hadn't had the inspiration to write it. COVID happened, and a number of people said to me, if ever there was a time for your message, it is now. And I thought on that, and I went back and looked at my journals, and I thought, you know, I have much of this book. I have much of this book. I have the stories of 9-11 and Gulf War and SARS and, you know, and my own personal, because I wrote the book to, you know, hardships, navigating disruption in your company, career, and life. Because in my experience and reflecting on my writings, rarely was there disruption that didn't impact all three. So I wanted to make sure the book spoke broadly and had tools and insights that would you know cut across. I had a lot of colleagues um, whose lives and careers were badly disrupted uh, by um, this event. Um, you know, so I'd had those disruptions in my career as an entrepreneur and otherwise. So what were some lessons? So I tried to relate all the way across in each of my protocols, give three levels of you know example and insight. Uh, so that was it. It was uh, I felt like it almost wrote itself. Given um, I had a combination of content, I had inspiration and passion, and I had um, current events. Mm. There was something you wrote, and we're going to step into the six protocols, but there was something you wrote that was quite <clears throat> pivotal, I think. You said, most execs had a view of the future returning to as is. You had a view of the consumer of the future being different. And you kind of knew that buyer behavior in the landscape would shift. And I think that's very poignant. And I think that that could be taken to, to all industries and all walks of life. I think that people tend to have a view of things going back to the way they were in their personal life as well as business. But I think having the wisdom and courage to know that you're going to step into a new future and being planned and intentional about that is a competitive advantage. Hey guys, it is RJ here and wanted to quickly take a break to say that I am so stoked that you have continued to support the show. Now, a lot of you moved from audio to YouTube. Some of you that were on YouTube have moved to audio. It does not matter. Your support is helping us cut through all that damn noise. We really appreciate everything you've done to support us thus far, and we hope that we continue to bring you game-changing insights and information. Now back to our guest. Enjoy the rest of this episode. It's true. It's true. You know, I, I here's how I think about disruption. One, um, it's the norm, not the exception. We fight hard against change. And against being disrupted, we want to prevent it from happening. But guess what? It's happening at, and with greater frequency, greater scale, greater impact than ever before. It's almost a constant now, given, uh, I think, mainly the impact of, uh, of two things, the global connectedness that we now have and technology enablement. I think those two things are driving, driving it like crazy. So um, I think it's the norm. Now, with disruption, I think no matter the severity comes opportunity. That's my observation. Always, always, always on the other side of disruption emerge new opportunity. Okay. So what do we do in disruption? We need to lift up our head. 
We need to look around that corner. We need to see what the future is bringing towards us in terms of opportunity. Grab a hold of those things and let those help pull you up to what I call the next normal. You know, partner with the future. <laughs> That's let it. go of the past. Let go <laughs> of the past. Partner <laughs> with the future. It's it's one of the um, what do you want to say the f- most frictionless things you can do. You know, there's a lot of things. I'll invest in this. I'll build that. I'll change that. Guess what? The future and the energy of that future is there to pull you forward. So grab it. You know, grab a hold of it. So that's one. The second observation I would say is that um, uh, one of the key outcomes of disruption is um, radical innovation. We always see innovation that matches the disruption. Okay. Things need to change. Uh, we have innovate. How did we end up with um, with uh, vaccines produced and delivered to the market in a year? When I think their previous record, the average is ten years. The previous record was like months for four years. Radical innovation. Okay. And um, in 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 health tech, in work at home tech, in there's just you know it was that's a response to the disruption. How do we go on? We need to science the crap out of this. We'll go this way, you know. And that's a so. So I always say, um, embrace innovation. Um, it's the accelerant to the next normal. Innovation is the accelerant to the next normal. The other thing that I would observe is this: deep codependence. We're all in this together. We're only going to get through it by working together. So let's recognize the importance of that codependence. Let's take down the barriers. Let's embrace, let's engage, and let's get busy together making a better tomorrow. Um, I think when we do that, we create something that I call relationship capital. It's a form of capital, every bit as valuable and tangible as financial capital. And guess what? It's, uh, it's more readily available often. You know, how one plus one equals three in relationship efforts with others, whether, whether you engage personally, whether you engage as a team, whether you engage as companies. I think we see all kinds of new partnerships, all, all types of new mergers, uh, you know, and combining of, um, of capabilities coming out of this COVID disruption. We see it in the cruise and travel business. We see it elsewhere. And lastly, I would say there is something you have to have to get through. And it's compelling purpose, compelling purpose, a purpose that is bigger than you, that aligns the interests within your organization and externally to aim everyone's efforts at accomplishing a goal, you know, uh, doing something good, (laughs) moving forward. Uh, I like to use the example of, uh, and you'll like this, uh, endurance swimmer, you may know of him, Louis Pugh. He's the... uh, the uh, UN um, uh, uh, patron of the oceans. Lewis believes uh, that climate change uh, risk to our oceans is extreme and at a critical point, particularly our polar regions. No ice, no life is what he says. Now, what does he do about that belief? Lewis undertakes the most difficult superhuman endurance swims in the oceans to call attention to this uh, matter. He recently, uh, last July, last, yeah, about July, did the climate swim, his biggest, toughest swim yet. Six miles across the face of the Aleutian Glacier in Greenland, zero degrees Celsius water, um, tides, currents, jagged ice pieces, you know, just superhuman, inhuman feet, never, never done, never contemplated by any human being. And he did it. Not only did it, he had to train and prepare for it. Now, what drives a person to do the superhuman or an organization to do the superhuman or a society to do the superhuman? It can only be compelling shared purpose. So I always tell and ask, what is your purpose? What is the purpose that aligns all these resources, all this energy, all these these bright minds, you know, uh, um, all this passion? What is the purpose that aligns uh, and enables, um, you know, uh, uh, great, great feats. That's quite profound. 
uh, David. I, there's, there's a lot in that. I, I want to ask you in terms of your initial comment around interdependence or codependence, the travel industry, particularly your industry, would have been ahead of the general globalization curve, right? Like I would imagine you guys would be having to have managed complex relationship with foreign stakeholders quicker than the general curve. Yes. Regulatory, uh, maritime laws. Uh, yeah, so In much. In the 80s, 70s, yeah. 60s, like before we were really a, a globalized network. So I suppose you would have a lot to offer in regards to that, to the main around, well, actually, how do you do that? And the recognition of we are an interconnected world and there are dependencies and ensuring like you're crossing seas that could potentially have, you know, pirates and like, there's all that kind of stuff. That's a reality, right? In terms of the industry that you're in. So I think that's interesting. Just the, the other thing that I think you brought up that's interesting is, do you have a view on um, just kind of being where you're at and having the view of the ocean over the years and the feedback? Like, do you have an opinion on kind of the oceans and the state of the ocean based on where you've been sitting for the previous years? Like, do you think it's a real issue? I do think it's a real issue. I think it's a very difficult one because the majority of um, ocean pollution is coming from rivers. It's dumped into the ocean, okay? And there are, um, yeah, and, and so it's a global problem, but it's also a somewhat isolated problem, right? That, so it, um, and that's where um, uh, different um, governments, countries, et cetera, comes into play, because that can either be helpful to solving the problem or it can be a barrier to solving the problem. Right now, I'd say mostly a barrier, you know, to to the kind of aggressive action needed. So we can do all the cleanup we want. We can get as green as we want uh, with the responsible ship operating, you know, anybody operating on the edges of the oceans. But until we can um, dramatically reduce the inflow of pollution into the oceans worldwide, we're going to have a problem. So that's one perspective. It's a real problem. It's a hard one to solve really hard one to solve. Generally, I think we can look at our history and say, we don't solve things until they become um, life-threatening crises. And, and I think it'd be very unfortunate if that's what it takes to address the oceans or other you know, issues that we face around environment. Uh, many of it, I, there's many fine examples of proactive. Every effort helps. Every effort helps. It's really critically important, builds awareness builds a firewall, you know, to slow down the progress, but the solution, the ultimate solution, I think still uh, um, eludes us in a way in terms of that total cooperation that's necessary. Um, the other thing I'd say on the global, the, the cruise industry, travel industry, I, I, you're right, we, we were a, um, a leading edge uh, example of global connection. Just think on a typical cruise ship, 21, at least 21 cultures in, among the crew. 21 cultures living in a smart and working together in a smart city. You know, different languages, different uh, cultures, traditions, religions, et cetera, food, all in a smart city. Amazing, amazing village, global village, you know, on a cruise ship. One of uh, my running partners, she's a doctor from South Africa. She was a doctor on cruise ships and she loved it. She'd get off and run and, and dock. And um, there was actually a, a very good ultra runner who, uh, I forget his name, he, he trained on a treadmill before he did his first ultra and he ended up beating the champion. Like it was, there seems to be a lot of ultra runners that I think because they're global citizens and they like to get around and like to run in different environments. and. Um, I'm going to pivot the conversation to your, your, your protocols. I think it's important to dive into that, the six protocols for survival, stability, and success. And they're very, very good. So there's, the first one is know your waypoint. Can you briefly unpack that, David? Uh, I'd love to. This is, they're in the order they are for a reason. These are absolutely, in my view, 
the order of these six important protocols. The first one, know your waypoint, is really um, at its core, the truth. What is the truth? I've, something has changed. I've been disrupted. I don't want to be disrupted. I want things to get back to the way they were right away. Everybody around me wants me to make things the way they were. <laughs> you know, no one wants to tell me the truth. What is the truth? I can't make good decisions unless I know the truth. Where am I? What just happened? What is, what's its impact? Um, uh, I'm no longer on the course that I was on. What course am I on now? Which course do I need to be on in order to get through this? You know, working your way through disruption is a different course than driving from point A to point B. So, you know, know your waypoint. Where am I now? What is the truth? Uh, what's all the bad news that I get, need to get out of the way at this point? So I'm dealing with it all. What type of disruption am I dealing with? Is this a sudden jolt, a rogue wave? Is this um, a slow leak? It's different. 9-11, sudden jolt. COVID, two-year rollout, slow leak. You know, my company, I worked, I worked with a, uh, a, a stellar 135-year-old global cruise line being disrupted um, via slow leak through loss of relevance, clinging to traditions of the past as the very market and the competitive set was changing, losing relevance. That's a, that's a form of uh, market disruption, you know? slow leak. So, so, you know, what is it? Where was I headed? How fast was this going? And in the book, I give a tool for, um, you know, a, a sample for um, a, a sample navigation chart as to how to determine your waypoint. Where am I now? So that, yeah, that's, that's essential. And really the, the key word there is truth. What's the truth? Intense reality check. And I, you know, I think that loss of relevance, just to speak to that, I think that's an elusive, very, very tricky one to deal with because it's easy for individuals to keep the blinders on the Kodak story, you know, the, the blockbuster story, right? Like, you know, this is what we've done. We've been successful. So we move on to stay afloat. So once you um, know your waypoint, many would assume now I take an action. It's time to do something, right? But in fact, I argue, take a moment and assess what resources you have or need in order to move through a disruptive event, okay? Do you have the capital necessary? Do you have the right team at this point in time? Do you have the right tech? Do you have the right point of view? Do you have the right strategy? That's the stay afloat. Wait a minute, you know, before we rush off to take the next action, because we're a fairly reactive uh, community, right? We tend to, we're all action oriented. We're leaders. We're hard chargers. We're doers. Okay. I've been disrupted. I know where I'm at. You know, we're going this way. Boom. But do we have the necessary supplies? Have we really mapped out the route? <laughs> you know, it's really important. Stay afloat. So I give a number of examples there of, uh, you know, eight tips to stay afloat, you know, um, uh, preserve cash, uh, take uh, promising projects and push them into the future so you don't burn up cash that you may need right now to get through this event. Um, uh, you know, you know uh, can you leverage this disruption? Is there a way to use the resources I have to make a change that's going to be benefit me on the other side, uh, et cetera? So staying afloat, I think, is really important. Um, you know, you have to know what it's worth to you to stay afloat. Sometimes I always talk about eyes on the prize. You know, you have to have something, see something on the other side that you can, you know, really um, um, define and understand and commit to. And if you can't, that, that's meaningful enough to, to have you go through the hardship of, of uh, navigating the event. If not, then I say find the exit. If you're involved, you know, if you are nominally committed to something, and now it's been disrupted and you're even less committed, you aren't going to make it. The sooner you find the exit, the better. You know, eyes on the prize or find the exit. And I guess that that really leads to find your first first, doesn't it? The next principle. Yeah. So uh, first first is that what is, out of all the many things you could do, the thousands of priorities screaming at you in a crisis or in a challenge, 
what is the one that if you fail to take it or you screw it up, is going to greatly diminish your chance of survival? Strip it away. What is the one thing? You know, for the cruise business, you would have thought it's, uh, it's raised capital. You know, we're, we're a capital intense industry. Cash flow has stopped. You know, uh, huge expenses. No, you want to know what the first first was? It was determine how to restart without disruption. So in other words, the death blow would be to restart cruising and to have another shutdown of the industry. That would be, okay, so knowing how to do that is even more important than restarting. Restarting with confidence, okay? So that meant science panels, global science panels, regulatory work, um, testing, testing, you know, really developing a whole new set of operating methodologies and protocols and partnerships worldwide that would allow the industry when it restarted to continue operation. Okay, so that was a first first. Now, every industry has a different scenario, but for the cruising to get shut down again would be the death blow, in my view. That would have been, you know, get up and running for three or six months and then a global shutdown. That's the end. You know, it would be very hard to recover from that. Hard enough to recover from the first one. So that was smart. Let's really realize what is, you know, what's essential here. And for the industry, it was that raising money, big publicly traded companies, huge valuable assets. They were able, obviously, to uh, find their way through that. Um, weren't happy about it. You know, take them years to chew down that debt, you know, but uh, at least they're back in operation and have an opportunity to do that. So first, first is uh, that one. The other thing I would tell people is often we'll think through several scenarios for coming out of a, for, for dealing with a, a problem or a challenge. Scenario A, well, we, it could look like this. B looks like that. C looks like that. Got to choose the best one. What is common to those scenarios? What are the common elements to those scenarios? That gives you a pretty good clue of your first, first. What's that one thing that if I don't get it right, you know, or if it isn't square in the middle of my strategy um, um, target, um, I'll have a hard time recovering. It would have been very easy. And if you would have had a cowboy player within your industry go out and try to recapture market without the right safety protocols and measures could have really destroyed it for everyone, right? Yeah, because for the everyone. Reality, because the thing is, you had to collectively collaborate and determine, no, we as an industry need to make sure that the market has confidence. We have the right safety regulatory protocols in play. If you had one cowboy go out there and decide to recapture the market with, you know, the bare minimums and then someone got sick, bam, yeah. it's Boom. screwing it up for everyone. Yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting because that would have shown collaboration necessary at mass. Um, so we move into the next principle. So you found your first first, and now it's about getting flexible. What's that mean? Well, um, things have changed. So should you. So, <laughs> right. So um, in the movies, it's possible. It might be possible to go back to the future, not in real life. <laughs> okay. And often um, there's uh, wanting, uh, th there's an urge to apply solutions of the past to problems of the future. That's not. That's not going to work, and I give a lot of uh, you know examples about that. But and I believe firmly in that. You've got to um, uh, open your mind, open the aperture, look at other industries, look at other competitors. What's uh, happening? What's working? How do I bring that into my uh, efforts and my activity? You know, not just a uh, um, head down. Um, you know. But I, I, I use the term throw out the old playbook. Right? Throw out that playbook, you need a new playbook. You need new, you need to, some new runs, some new, you know, some new plays. You got to partner with the future. Yeah, you got to get flex. And next step is you become collision proof. Yeah, three points, quick points to that. Number one, um, it's really important to develop the adaptability, the survival muscle. So each time you go through a disruption, you go through all types of them all the time, over time. So 
why not be a student of disruption? Why not uh, do postmortem postmortems? What worked for us? What didn't? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? What were we too slow getting to? What did we, you know, get out of the gate too fast on? Too too cowboyish, you know. Um, and and incorporate they into your culture, your learning, your training, your 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 business model. So that's part of it, you know, become more resilient intentionally over time based on the events of the past, lessons of the events of the past. Secondly, um, and this is really important, uh, it, you grew up in the airline business, so you'll know a um, an incident response plan. Uh, there isn't an airplane that operates that isn't operating under an incident response plan. The company behind it, the, the governmental agencies behind that, uh, there's an incident response plan. Everything is done to prevent the worst from happening, but when it does happen, there is a plan that um, exists for the purpose of um, enabling immediate uh, uh, action of the right type. Everybody knows where to be, what their role is, what the goals and objectives are, what the resources available are, who's where, who is the incident team that goes to a site in the for in the event of an unfortunate event, who is the headquarters team, what's the command and control, you know, the whole, how does communication work when communication's been disrupted, the whole thing, you know, it's, it, there's an incident response plan, training, 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 and those incident response plans are continuously upgraded based on learnings from the past. So have an incident response plan. In our lives, we have one. Often, we will have a will, <laughs> you know, or we will have a, um, a health directive. But you know what? Life, I like to say, is about the living, not the dying. So do you have an incident response plan? Should you have a financial setback, an unexpected financial setback? Do you have an incident response plan? Should you fall ill and have a, you know, impact on uh, your normal daily life? Uh, who is part of that plan and what do they need to know? Who are you, you, your lawyers, your healthcare providers, your spouse, your kids, your best friends, your support system? Do they know what your plan is for dealing with challenges in your own life? You know, I, I think it's worth sitting down thinking that through, you know? Um, and then companies, of course, should, should all have incident response plans uh, to try to envision uh, where, what are the things that could be most impactful to us? And if should that occur, what do we do? How, are we prepared to respond responsibly and, and effectively to it? And the last, yeah, the last part of that is risk mitigation. Identify the risks, do all that you can to mitigate the odds of those risks occurring in your case. I, I mean, you know, um, uh, it, it just, uh, it's an obvious, I, th I argue that each time there's a disruption, new risks emerge uh, out on the horizon and it's time to update the risk mitiga mitigation plan. So COVID, you know, the, we look to the future now with COVID on the radar screen or global pandemics, what, you know, you know we got a whole new set of risks, operating risks, financial risks to mitigate against personally and in our careers and in our businesses. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend last week who's written a book called Rogue Waves. You'll appreciate that. And it's all about leveraging risk. Jonathan Brill, how to actually leverage chaos. I love uh, the title. Yeah, I thought you would. <laughs> yeah. um, and interestingly enough, uh, to, I was supposed to be, uh, the conversations got rescheduled for next week. Uh, my next uh, guest is going to be a ex-commander of the Coast Guard. Uh, Sandy, so, so it seems to be this kind of theme. Um, nautical theme going. Yeah, it's yeah. a nautical Maritime. theme. Maritime. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the, the, this all culminates in the sixth uh, protocol, which is protect your value, which I suppose is quite obvious. But can you, in your terms, kind of walk us through what that means? When the world around you is in reactive mode to an event, war, economic calamity, health calamity, whatever it is, um, there, uh, people can do really uh, dumb, reactive things. Drop their prices, um, uh, cut quality, uh, cut corners, and um, and undermine 
long-term value. Uh, the perspective of, uh, of, of in the marketplace of your company's value is critical to your long-term success. So we learned early on in the cruise industry, well, it's possible to drop price dramatically and, and speed up the flow of people back to the ships after a uh, disruption. That doesn't work well for some types of cruise lines. The big uh, ship cruise lines who are able to make a lot of revenue off the casino, off the bars, you know, off the alternative restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a big enough part of their revenues that lowering price to keep the volume aboard the ships is really important. But if you're a higher end cruise line and many of those things are included in your basic price and you don't have that, those added um, charges to, to rely on, now you've got to be really careful about reducing your price because um, the reason people pay more for your product is because of their perceived value of your higher service level, your higher quality, your better accommodations. The minute you devalue that, it takes years, years to rebuild that value perception. You may solve a problem in the short term, but actually you're better to accept lower occupancy, you know, and 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 a few other a few other things in order to preserve your value so that when the market recovers, you're starting where you left off. You're not starting in a deep hole that you created for yourself. It's like you're competing with your future self when you do that. And uh, I think, um, yeah, protect your value. So it might be in pricing, but it might be in quality. It might be in uh, consistency and how you show up as a person and as a professional. Uh, I talk, I think, in my book about the example of, you, you know, the work at home, um, the in-between jobs. I, I've always made myself available to colleagues. How can I help? Tell me what you're up to. What do you want to do next? If I know of someone or I have an idea for you, I will be glad to make that connection. Um, I've been shocked, frankly, at times the way those professionals have shown up for a conversation with me. Okay. Protect your value. Show up as a player. Show, show up as someone who's been thinking about um, current events, who is prepared to jump in the moment opportunity is available and to make a new contribution. Someone who's been adding to their value through taking courses or uh, gaining new experiences during the, the in-between, you know, protect your value. Don't tell me how bad it's been, how frustrated you are, the 50 interviews that didn't go right. Um, you're in your pajamas almost. Uh, that's a bad look. And it doesn't inspire me to say, this is a person I want to recommend to someone I value highly, you know? Uh, so protect your value at the personal level, at the business level, et cetera. This has been a brilliant conversation, David. Such, such wisdom. I could really talk to you forever, but I really I do appreciate you and I appreciate the time. As we close this out, where can our audience learn more about your book? Um, the book's available on Amazon, um, in um, Kindle, audio, softcover, hardcover. Uh, hardships, two words. I have a simple URL, gethardships.com. It'll take you straight to the Amazon landing page. Uh, DavidGearsdorf.com is another place you can uh, learn about the book, learn about me. I, I post articles there as well. And uh, if you're on LinkedIn as a, uh, you know, a business uh, environment, uh, David Gearsdorf, LinkedIn is a ready place to uh, follow and connect with me. And I'm happy to respond uh, and, and connect as well. So yeah, there's that. And the last thing I would just leave people with, be a beacon, be a beacon, you know, in hard times, um, our normal um, beacons are not always visible to us. The, 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 the lighthouse, the buoy, the, the North Star isn't always, there's times when you have to be the beacon, your character, your courage, your mindset, your leadership is the beacon for yourself and for others. And you know what? If you encourage others and help others to become beacons themselves, you got a brighter combined light to shine on any problem. So I always going through a disruption or a challenge, I always try to think about how's my beacon? How bright is my beacon shining, right? And what am I doing to help others shine? 
so that uh, we can shed more light on, on this uh, together. So the final comment. And so great to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. All right. Take care, Arjun.